Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm excited to have in the studio today a author and filmmaker who has really been tearing up the horror scene for quite a number of years now. She has been a journalist who has worked for such sites as Fearnet, Halloween Love, Icons of Fright, Blumhouse, Playboy, Bitch Flicks, and she founded her own amazing site, Day of the Woman, that started it all off. She's the filmmaker behind such acclaimed shorts as Margaret, Eat It Up in Seven Minutes, and recently just completed her feature film, Powerbomb. Please welcome to the show, BJ Colangelo. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. I'm I mean, s- I was in town, so what else am I going to do other than hang out with you? Well, you know, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start the show the way I always do, uh, with the same first question I ask all of my guests, and it is simply this. Why horror? What's your point of reference? What brings you to the genre? However you choose to interpret that, why horror? So horror has always been somewhat of my lifeblood. I was very fortunate to have parents that were, some would say, neglectful. I would say (laughs) open-minded in all of the content they would expose me to. My parents never sugarcoated anything. They never forbid me from seeing anything. Um, but my mom loves horror. So her, her mindset behind all of it is that as long as she is with me watching it and she is there to explain to me what's happening, then I'll always love it. I'll always appreciate it. And it will never scare me. Uh, not only that, but they never allowed me to turn something off if I was scared, knowing that my imagination would be far worse than how the film would actually end. So it taught me a sense of closure. It was a great exercise in helping me deal with negative emotions as a kid. And because I've always been around it, it's always been something that fascinated me um, because I never quite understood why I was allowed to watch everything, but my friends couldn't. Mm -hmm. I remember being, I don't know, maybe six or seven when uh, South Park came out and I was the only kid in my grade who had seen it because the rest of them got warned by the PTA. This is not for children. Don't watch it. And my parents were under the impression of, yeah, we're absolutely going to watch it because otherwise it's just going to become, you know, idealized in your head and you're going to want it anyway. So at least we can control it if we're watching it with you. Um, But my mom's really big into horror. She let me watch it with her. My dad likes to scare people, but he doesn't like to be scared. So I grew up with, you know, a dad who's constantly pulling pranks and um, he used to run the haunted hayride in town. So I was used to uh, him trying out new scares as a child. And it's just, it's like another part of my identity, Mm -hmm. I guess. And as I got older and started to understand the mechanics and the theories behind horror and why is it the one genre of film that has never died down in popularity as compared to Westerns or science fiction, um, that's something that interests me. And I think it comes down to fear being a universal emotion and that we're all afraid of something, but we're not all afraid of the same thing. So the possibilities are endless and that's really beautiful and um, interesting to me. And at what point when growing up with this and watching these movies with your parents and knowing that they supported and liked the genre, did you go from being an active fan to someone who wanted to be actively involved? Like when did you decide I want to be a filmmaker or a writer within the genre sphere? What was that turning point for you? Um, I was at a sleepover when I was probably eight or nine and the neighbor boys down the street and, uh, the, one of the girls who lived a couple blocks down, all of our parents were friends. So we all grew up together. We all had, you know, boy, girl sleepovers. They weren't worried about any of it. We were very almost sibling like, Mm -hmm. and our babysitter who, um, watched all of us at any given time had left a bunch of movies from the video store one of them being Sleepaway Camp. And I remember watching all of us have different moments that scared us. And I think the light bulb clicked of, I want to do that. I want to scare everybody. Like, this movie is scaring everybody, but they're not all afraid of the same thing. I want to do that. I want to be in control of what scares you, Um, which is a weird power trip, I guess, to have. Um, But that was was definitely the turning point. And then... um, I think as I got older, I'm also a musical theater kid, do a lot of a lot of that. And I get typecast a lot into the same roles and that's fun. But being able to write my own stories and not 
play Tracy Turnblad for the seventh time <laughs> is exciting to me. Um, and that's, I think, where the, the director side and the writer side started to come into play to kind of figure out exactly what I wanted to do in film other than just, oh, I want to make them. It's interesting that you talk about a measure of control over the audience. Uh, we had another guest in previous weeks, Daniel Montgomery, talk about how there's an excitement for him that he knows that through horror and comedy, you can almost control people's breathing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I never really thought of it as a, a storyteller and writer myself as kind of a means of control. But I guess there is a way like you are actively capturing someone for at least 90 minutes. There's, kind of, there's something kind of delicious about that. Yeah, it's an exercise in manipulation. What I do love is that your revelatory moment happened during sleepaway camp, which, you know, although with modern politics is, is problematic, is still a film that has a queer bend, which mm -hmm. we, of course, adore here on the show. Uh, do you, did it begin with Day of the Woman for you? Because that was your first. Day of the Woman is what I think really hammered at home for me how impactful horror films could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm used to the belief that, oh, Titanic's the greatest love story in the entire world, and it just right. makes me cry. I get that. I understand that. And everybody always saw my love of horror as something weird or something lower than, or lesser than, I should say. Right. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I'm public about it, so I, I was assaulted very brutally um, by a group of people when I was 15 and therapy didn't work. Everyone was treating me differently. I didn't enjoy any of it. And then I saw Dave the Woman, commonly known as I Spit in Your Grave. And that's what helped me through everything. That's what made me kind of have the light bulb go off of, oh, no, you don't have to be a victim. You can be a survivor. You can endure this. You can get past this. And that was a very revolutionary moment of film has actual impact and can change lives and can change the way you think. So that was, I think, the separation between the childhood adoration of horror films, um, the way that I would seeing Sleepaway Camp as a child and knowing what that made me feel, right. whereas Day of the Woman impacted the way that I live. And mm -hmm. that's, that's the power, I think, in it. So you think that there is a healing quality to horror films as well? Absolutely. It's, it's completely, uh, it's totally cathartic. Um, and there's a weird level of like schadenfreude mm -hmm. watching other people just get hacked to bits. And there's also a nice poetic justice in most horror films and that the bad people get what they deserve and the good people prevail. And I think we live in a world where that's not always the case, where True. sometimes really awful people get away with things for very long periods of time and great people are silenced and pushed down. And seeing seeing a horror film kind, kind of gives you that relief of living in a world where bad people get what they deserve. And that's, that's nice and calming. And I think that's why so many people are attracted to the genre. And we talk about Day of the Woman, uh, the film, and how mm -hmm. it had that impact on you. And obviously, it meant so much to you that you eventually named your blog site mm -hmm. after it. Was, I mean, I, that was, of course, a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. Were you doing writing before you founded Day of the Woman? I was doing writing in the sense that I was leaving overly winded comments on forums, uh, mm -hmm. like the Bloody Disgusting forums or Reddit pages. And eventually I realized that I hated the landscape of most of the horror sites I was reading, where there would be occasionally a few female writers, but nobody was really kind of s stamping the flag of, I am a female writer. I'm writing from a female perspective. I am not trying to be universally appealing. Right. And... I had just started college, so I was very much like at the height of my insufferability and decided I needed to, to I needed to say something. Um, and it was also right before, you know, the explosion of social media. Facebook was still relatively new. Twitter was not really a thing yet. I think I started Twitter a year after the site and suddenly it started picking up a lot of attention when people realized, one, that I was a woman, and two, that I was a very young woman. Right. Um, and it was a perspective that they weren't really hearing. So then that just sort of motivated me to continue writing and keep things going and realize that I don't have to keep my opinions and my thoughts and my interpretations of things on notebooks and put them under a mattress in a, in a dorm room. I can put them out there and people can see it and read it. And that was better for me than 
getting buried under a bunch of comments on Bloody Disgusting where someone's just going to tell me that I'm an idiot or some other awful (laughs) (laughs) name that I will not say on air, but uh, a lot of that. I recall, you know, in the mid-thousands when the rise of online horror journalism was sort of at its apex and the Mm -hmm. blogosphere was really blowing up and there were a lot of different sites, but yours really did kind of emerge through the crowd as being a uh, not only a place to get the female perspective, but you were willing to kind of go to uncomfortable places and discuss topics that horror journalists wouldn't. And you uh, really carved a place in the landscape that was so unique and powerful and necessary. But when you're doing something like that, when you start out, you don't always really plan on something having impact. Right. So at what point when you were writing Day of the Woman, did you realize, oh, this this is a thing? Like, when did you realize it had really kind of like shifted kind of your identity in the world of, of the genre? It actually happened at a Cinema Wasteland convention when I was probably 21. Mm-hmm. So it was my first wasteland to be able to legally drink. <laughs> and I was looking at the DVDs over at 42nd Street Pete's table and I could feel somebody like hovering behind me very like brainy and hey Arnold just like mouth breather like hovering behind me and um, he taps me on the shoulder and he says hey are you are you BJ Colangelo and I turned around and I kind of had to turn on like Miss America politeness and I said well yeah I am so are you like a guest here are you doing are you doing a panel like no I'm just buying DVDs and watching schlocky films that's what I'm doing (laughs) he's like oh well I really like your blog I read it every day it's it's really awesome and I read it with my daughter and I do this and he was so excited to meet me and my friends were there and they were all watching this happen and at one point I was kind of like oh my god please rescue me I have no idea who this guy is I this is so out of my wheelhouse what do I do what do I do and they're like no you're gonna handle this on yourself um and he was just so appreciative to talk to me and listen to the things I had to say wanted to know my opinions about the movies that were playing and when the conversation ended and he walked away I was like oh i yeah, people actually read this and like this has become something that people look forward to and seek out. And that's very, very terrifying, but also very cool. Right. And then I realized, okay, yeah, this is this is who I am. There are going to be people who that's what they're going to know me as for the rest of my life. And that's that's when I kind of had the shift of, okay, I need to start taking this a little bit more seriously. Um, I started getting, um, a little bit more analytical and more academic in my style while still trying to keep it entertaining. But I stopped doing like stupid video blogs that had nothing to do with anything. Cause that was the moment I realized, Oh no, people can see this and right. they're going to take this with them. And from day of the woman, you started writing, across the the sphere of of horror. Uh, In in the intro, we talked about some of the places that you had written for, the now defunct uh, Fearnet, Halloween Love. You wrote for Icons of Fright. You did some stuff with Bloody Disgusting. Most recently, you did things with Blumhouse. And you just got a new job for a a publication. Would you like to talk about that? Sure. I am the new director of sales for DreadCentral.com, which is the number two horror website in America and top 10 in the world. Um, I deal with the ad sales, site takeover, so anybody who wants to, you know, plaster the site with their movie. I'm the one that you talk to. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's very surreal. I start, you know, to look back and think 10 years ago, I was just somebody with a blog. And now I have like a big, important big girl job in, in the industry that I love so dearly. And the, the horror journalism industry has always been really kind to me in the sense that I've always had opportunities, which a lot of people can't say. And I'm very privileged to be able to have those opportunities. Um, They've also been some of the most wonderful people that I've ever worked with. Um, Some of the readers have been less than stellar at times, but that's the age of the internet and being anything other, even if it is just being a female. Um, You, I've put up with a lot of nonsense through the years that have you know, stopped some of my other female writer friends who just couldn't deal with it anymore. And that's a shame. Yeah. But uh, I am very, very happy and honored to work with Dread Central, which is such a 
they've been around for over 12 years. I mean, they're a staple as far as the cutting edge of horror news and where people go to get their resources. And I am glad that I'm able to lend them my voice, lend them my skills and help give them a more well-rounded um, voice in general. Now, I think the first time you and I met, you mentioned you mentioned that your first fan encounter was Cinema Wasteland. Mm-hmm. But I think that you and I met for the first time at a Cinema Wasteland we as well. You're at the Ultraviolet Table. That's right. Um, another publication that is exists in our world of underground. Yep. Or uh, and I, you know, I was already aware of your work at that point. And one thing that I've always liked about you and our friendship over social media and in life from the time that I met you. Uh, is that you truly have proven that you can take something that you're passionate about and make it your job. And uh, it's it's people like you who I can point to when people are like, oh, this is hard work. And it's just, you know, yeah, it is. But if you believe in it and you fight for it, look what you can do. You started a blog, probably never thinking that was going to be your career. Oh, not at all. I was trying to keep myself from going crazy in a college dorm room that was basically in Farmtown, Illinois, almost Iowa. Right. As a born and raised Chicago person, I was a total snob and I was like, I'm losing my mind. I'm going to write a blog about it. <laughs> and now here you are. You are on, like you said, the number two horror site here in America, is it? <laughs> Top 10 in the world, kicking ass. Doing what I can. Always hats off. Uh, but not only do you write about films, you make them. I do. So. Let's talk a little bit about your filmmaking life. Sure. Uh, at what point, before we dig into the individuals, um, did you realize it's not enough for me to write about movies? I also want to write and make movies. Or was that always kind of part of the plan? That was always part of the plan. I just never thought I would ever have the opportunity to Mm -hmm. make movies. And then I met Zach Schilwachter, who is my producing partner and partner in life and just the one of the best people I've ever met. And he had a very long career in New York working on film and television and wanted to stop working for other people. And if he was going to be working on films, do things that were going to be beneficial for him creatively and not just a paycheck. Cause that's, I think what happens to a lot of people who want to make films is because it is, it is hard work and it is expensive and there's a moment where it stops becoming an artistic endeavor and becomes a livelihood where you have to sacrifice all the things that make you happy and your creativity because you have to pay rent. Right. Um, currently Zach and I both live in Cleveland where you can buy a four bedroom house with a front yard and a backyard for under a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> so <laughs> it costs nothing to make, movies there and because it's an environment where people are not used to films being made there they're just excited to participate you can shoot anywhere and people say yeah you can have this location for free it's no big deal um boy do i have news about for you about moving to la (laughs) oh i know it's going to (laughs) going to change quite abruptly um but when we realized how we had these advantages that our friends in LA, in New York, in Chicago didn't have. We're like, well, screw it. What's stopping us? There's nothing stopping us at this point. So we made our first film. It was a, um, an entry for the ABCs of death competition. And from the first day on set, I had done, you know, bit parts in films as an actress and I've worked on like some PA work before, but actually directing it and seeing, the thing that I had written then come to life and being able to give actors direction, which I had never gotten as an actress. I just received it all the time. I never gotten, I had never gotten to give direction and then to see the final product have control over the sound, the color grade, the music, everything, and really make it what I wanted in my head. It was the most exhilarating feeling in the world. And then I realized, okay, I have to find the balance to be able to do both. I still want to continue writing about film because it's what interests me, but making films and telling stories that I don't think are being told and being able to cast actors and actresses that um, otherwise wouldn't be given per, uh, given roles. Right. Those are things that I'm very passionate about. And the only way to do that is on kind of the independent scene. Mm-hmm. And I 
thought that I would be doing the same way that I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't write about the hard topics that I do with film theory that most people won't touch. I'm also doing a disservice if I have the opportunities to make films the way that I would want them to be seen to not do it. What was your letter? On M. M. M is for? It was M is for missionary. <laughs> and it was about two Mormon missionaries who, well, people who were disguising themselves as Mormon missionaries and going door to door. And if somebody actually let them in the house, uh, they were like spree killing them. And then they would just change their clothes and then go to the next house and do what, do what they do best with hammers and killing. Oh, as, yeah. you, as you do. A door to door. <laughs> uh, and you made a number of shorts, uh, including Margaret, which I want to talk about. Sure. Uh, Margaret is a prequel of ways to Carrie, and it's about Margaret as she is pregnant yes. with Carrie. Uh, so I assume that you are a big fan of Carrie. I'm a huge fan of Carrie. So what What to you is is the draw of Carrie? Why Why that? Why Like when you decided to sit down and, and make this short why of all horror the pantheon of horror was that the source material that you went to because when you think of carrie everyone immediately thinks of pig's blood and Mm -hmm. prom and fire but that's not the horror of that film the horror in that movie is margaret and the horror in that movie is chris and just the awful people that surrounded this poor girl who eventually snapped and i'm I'm one of the people that has the theory that um, because Carrie only ever showed her telekinetic abilities when she was under high duress or very upset or insulted. And she was given kind of the ultimate humiliation. And Sissy Spacek stands there with her eyes wide and doesn't really move much. She just kind of looks around and everything destroys her. And I think that that's also a very similar response many people have to trauma is that they kind of just freeze up and they don't know what to do. So, of course, her telekinesis is going to go out of control and just kill everyone. Um, And I, I always found that fascinating that people love Carrie but they never think about what's truly scary about it. And again, that's where my analytical brain comes in and that's why it interests me. And I think Margaret White as a character is horrifying um, and she doesn't get enough appreciation. And I always wanted to know like who was Margaret when she found out she was pregnant with Carrie. I mean, you get little glimpses of it um, in the books and in, in the films where she talks about meeting Carrie's father, she talks about, you know, the the weird marital rape sort of situation that very much confuses her because she likes it, but she doesn't like it. Right. And that's always been fascinating to me. And I just thought, you know what? It's a vague enough property if I just call it Margaret and don't call it Margaret White or Carrie prequel that I could tell a story about that character. What would Margaret be like as a pregnant woman? What Mm -hmm. would she think? How would she feel? And you know, how early did Carrie's abilities come to be? Was it in utero? Was it something taught? Let's find out. I love the idea of a psychic baby in the womb. (laughs) Um, Now that's a very it's a very serious subject matter short, and I, I think it's executed brilliantly. And then an, another short of yours, "Eat It Up," is very tonally different. Absolutely, <laughs> I, I almost and I, I'm just going to take a stab in the dark. I feel like it was inspired by more of a John Waters. Oh, absolutely. Sort of. Yeah. Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that short? Yeah, I, sure. So, "Eat It Up" is the story of a turf war between two rival gangs, uh, an all-male gang and an all-female gang, um, but rather than shooting each other or West Side Story jazz tap stab each other, um, <laughs> they solve their disputes with competitive eating, um, similar to kind of the man versus food or Guy Fieri TV shows where you just eat like a monster. Um, they all have really ridiculous names. Um I played a character named Susie Cream Cheese, and my girl gang were the Von Schweetz, named after Vanellope Von Schweetz from Wreck-It Ralph. And, <laughs> but all the girls are uh, Princess Bubble Pop, uh, Judy Jawbreaker, Susie Cream Cheese, and then the guys are the Boss Hog, Jimmy Streets, who only eats street food, uh, Greasy Gary, who's like the king of the microwave. Um, oh, God. Wheezy, who 
is named after the the line in Encino Man of wheezing the juice because his gimmick is that he once wheezed an entire slushy machine. Whew, that would kill which, you. Yeah, yeah, and you just have the worst brain freeze yeah. of all time. Um, so yeah, it's a these these two gangs that meet up in a diner. They they're questioning who actually has the turf rights and then there's an eating contest of a bucket full of spaghetti which i actually ate a lot of very cold spaghetti oh my god and uh it's it's a lot of fun but the dialogue is like 90 percent puns um mm-hmm. but none of the puns are winks at the audience all the characters truly talk that way and believe that that's how they should be speaking with one another and it's ridiculous and fun and colorful and I remember when you sent it to me uh, <laughs> and I, I think that I gasped a number of times watching it because it's sort of like appalling in an amazing way. Like it's just so deliciously fun. But the spaghetti is like it's awful. It was so <laughs> cold and so bad. And at one point I <laughs> I was like shoving all the spaghetti in my mouth and it fell down my face into my cleavage and I didn't know what to do. And I could see uh, Zach was directing it and I can see him like motioning like eat the spaghetti on your boobs so I did that and apparently that's a fetish and there's a gif of it on some like creepy reddit forum of me just like taking spaghetti out of my cleavage and eating it so so you've achieved internet infamy in a number of ways yeah (laughs) Uh, and then there's seven minutes which I of course for listeners of this show I think is a very appropriate short because it's a homoerotic vampire piece yes uh and i also you know if people have not gleaned yet uh from our conversation i happen to know that you really love queer content i do so (laughs) so let's talk a little bit about seven minutes and then we'll dig into that as well yeah sure so seven minutes comes from the fact that my three favorite movies growing up as a child were don't tell mom the babysitter's dead uh serial mom and fright night and I love that all vampire films are inherently homoerotic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my Twitter bio currently says that I'm the love child of Chris Sarandon in Fright Night and Susan Sarandon in The Hunger. Um, I could see it. Yeah. <laughs> that's just my, how my brain works. Um, so Seven Minutes is about just a group of friends who are going to play Seven Minutes in Heaven. And um, there there are que- there is a queer character in it. Um, she her, This wonderful actress named Flea Thomas um, plays... Uh, like a sassy black girl not because it's a character that's just who she is like Mm -hmm. we i just kind of let her do what she wanted to do um but two of the guys get paired off into the closet and it's very much kind of tongue-in-cheek of like you don't have to do anything when you're in there but if you want to knock yourself out and then it's revealed that you know half of the group of friends there are vampires and they were planning this party to turn the rest of their friends and it's fun and (laughs) <laughs> tongue in cheek and it was a blast to write it was a blast it was not a blast to shoot that's a lie it was awful because I shot that one like three months after I had one of my cancer surgeries and I still had tubes under my dress so I was miserable oh. um and our sound recordist was like six and a half months pregnant so she was miserable but hey indie film you <laughs> right you do what you can what I like about seven minutes is uh, it is funny and it is a comedy but the idea of these two guys in the closet and like well we don't have to do anything it does also play upon that like palpable fear that straight men have of mm-hmm. being perceived as gay mm-hmm. and you really hit a nail on the head because like to the rest of the world it's like what's the fucking deal like someone thinks you kissed someone else who cares right but like that it's just kind of played for that stupidity that it kind yeah. of is is uh really smart because it's something that we don't often address really i think in film is uh how people are worried about perception right but really we shouldn't be no, I agree completely. And the uh, the one male vampire character who does, you know, end up in the closet with the straight guy who is a human, um, his character is written a lot after my own sexuality, which is, I don't really have a label for it. I always just tell people that I'm an equal opportunity employer and all are willing, are welcome to apply. <laughs> um, and that's very much who that, who that character is, is that he, he makes kind of sexual jokes and advances towards everybody and it doesn't he's not specific to any one gender identity Mm -hmm. um and then he gets in this closet and he's expressing a lot of love that he has for you know his his sister and the women in his life but he also is totally comfortable with just like attacking 
a straight guy. And it's not done in kind of an interview with a vampire, like seduction way. It's just like very matter of fact. And is like, Hey, this is who I am. Right. Well, I mean, a vampire is the ultimate predator. So he's gonna, he's gonna be predating. <laughs> like, Praying. Praying upon. Yes. This has been your language arts lesson <laughs> on this episode of Dead for Filth. And you recently just completed a feature film, Power Bomb, which kind of brings together the world of wrestling mm-hmm. with horror movies. Now, I want to talk about Power Bomb, but I also want to talk about the world of pro wrestling because I know that you're a big fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that. And I love, I, I, I just want to know what it's like being a fan of pro wrestling. Do you get mansplained to a lot? Oh, yeah. (laughs) More than you can imagine. (laughs) Like, I thought horror bros were bad. Wrestling bros are the worst. So, um, and how long have you been into wrestling? I was huge into wrestling when I was a kid. Um, Ric Flair was my bread and butter. My dad loved Ric Flair. And then during what is called the Attitude Era, which is one of the more popular... Wrestling. It was kind of the wrestling renaissance for many people. Mm-hmm. That's when The Rock was at his peak, Stone Cold at his peak, for those who don't watch. But it was also the absolute worst time to be a female wrestling fan. That's when they started doing kind of the like the Playboy gown matches and, you know, oh, look at those puppies. And it, even as a, a young girl, made me very uncomfortable. And I didn't like watching wrestling with my classmates because, you know, we'd all scream and cheer and have a great time. And then the women's matches would come out and... I mean, even as a preteen, it's like, are they all going to start like jerking it to this? Like it was so gratuitous. And, you know, I'm definitely not of the mindset of like, oh, this is totally exploiting. Like, I understand like this is something they were all choosing to do. But at the same time, the writers have control of what they're giving out into the world. And like if these are the decisions they're making for female fans that for female wrestlers, I'm just not into it. So I fell off the wagon. And then. During cancer treatment, actually, my nephew Cash, who's in Powerbomb, introduced me to a wrestler named Candice LeRae. She's very popular out here in California. She mm-hmm. does a lot with bar wrestling. Um, she's She was just in the Mae Young Classic on WWE. But she had a match, uh, her and Joey Ryan, who is, if if people are queer and don't know who Joey Ryan is, you're all not doing your homework. Um Write it down. He's unbelievable. But Candice and Joey are a the world's cutest tag team, as they call themselves. They had a match with uh, the Young Bucks, who are two independent, just m- monster tag team people. And Candice took a kick to the face uh, where he had tacks on his cleats. And she was in a like Mariah Carey rainbow ring gear. And she has beautiful blonde hair. And then her whole face was just covered in blood. And she continued fighting. And she she won. She ended up winning the whole match. And I looked at it and I said, I have never seen a female wrestler given the same amount of respect for the athleticism, but also the brutality mm-hmm. of the sport that men are given. And that's when I was kind of caught up with like, well, yeah, if you look at the independents, like women are terrifying, like they're great. They're none of them are treated like models who happen to fight. It's not cat fighting. It's the actual drama and athleticism of of the of what the men get to do. And I'm also a firm believer that professional wrestling, uh, in particular, Monday Night Raw and RuPaul's Drag Race are the same show. Um <laughs> They're all fighting for titles that aren't really real. They all have catchphrases. They all have drama. They all have backstories. They all have taglines. There's just a lot of pageantry. And whereas wrestling fights with kind of fists and brutality, Drag Race fights with uh, reading, obviously. Pointed barbs and great nails. (laughs) Yes. So it's, it's like the exact same thing, just different just a different end of the spectrum as far as gender performance is concerned. It's ultra masculinity and ultra femininity. And I think that's probably why I like both of them so much. And there's also just an inherent homoeroticism to wrestling. It's like beautiful chiseled men oiled up fighting each other. And even some of the submission moves, it's like your face is in his asshole. Like, do you (laughs) not see what you're doing here? Um, (laughs) And it's just, it's entertaining. Uh, like there's Zach will be really mad at me, but he'll get over it. There's a line that we have in Powerbomb where somebody's explaining why they like wrestling, and he says, "I like the drama and the pageantry and the violence. It's the type of theater that ancient Greeks wish they had invented." And that's exactly how I feel about it. 
I think that's great. You know, I never really fell into the world of professional wrestling, but I had a brief moment in high school where a lot of friends that I had would watch it. So I would sort of like passively like to fit in, like as we all have our moments as teenagers. And the one thing I always got into was like the dramatic entrances. Oh, which, yes. Like, so, and it was like during the era where like the lights would go red and I think like Kane or whoever mm-hmm. it was and The Undertaker. And of course I liked them because it was all gothy horror shit. Mm-hmm. Um but that was it. Like, even to this day, even though that's not necessarily my point of reference or interest, I'm like, I want to enter a room like those guys. Like, who doesn't want to just... And you're right. There is that kind of, like, drag theatricality to it. That's really interesting. Right now, there's a there's a wrestler named Bobby Roode, and he comes out. He's very, very masculine. If they didn't make him shave his chest, he would be just, like... Like, if you thought, like, what does a bear look like? Right. Bobby Roode. And he's got, you know, full beard, and he comes out in this giant blue sequined robe with feathers and it says glorious on the back and he comes out to a full chorus of like a gospel choir singing glorious (laughs) and it is (laughs) remarkable to see i would need i'll we'll be youtubing this later um (laughs) so of course you're a horror movie enthusiast Mm -hmm. and you take your love of of pro wrestling and you put them together and we get powerbomb Mm -hmm. uh what's the reaction been to the movie so far um for the people who have seen it i think it's it's great because it's a it's a horror movie that happens to have wrestlers in it Mm -hmm. but the wrestling sort of lingo and situations that are in it are ones that non-wrestling fans can understand because what's fascinating about wrestling is that we all know it's fake. It's not fake. It's predetermined. But we all know. We're all right. in on it. Right. And it's it's the dramatics that we're interested in. But because wrestling still sort of blurs that line between fantasy and reality, I think that's really interesting as far as fandom. The difference between wrestling fans or basketball fans or even movie fans is that there's a distinct line between fantasy and reality and wrestling doesn't have that. Right. There are people who sincerely and genuinely believe wrestling is real and that the people fighting are really fighting. And to some extent, yes, it's, it's the same thing that stunts and stage combat. It's real. The contact is real. The outcome predetermined. But I'm so interested in the people that don't get that. Right. Because it it terrifies me. Like there's such a a loss of of rea- of the grasp of reality that wrestling fans can have sometimes and sometimes I, I get into it. It's called being worked. And I'll find myself getting really worked. I'll get so mad about something and I'll be screaming and booing and then I have to take the second stop. I'm like, what am I doing? Like this right. this isn't real. Like they're working me. That's that's what's happening. Um so people watching it I think are more upset and put off by that realization because I don't think people think about it that way right um so for the wrestling fans they're like this is so uncomfortable is this what i look like is this who i am because the villain the the story of powerbomb is um an independent wrestler played by the beautiful and wonderful uh matt cross also known as son of havoc on lucha underground he looks like what michelangelo had dreams about like he's looks like he chills a lot of marble Hmm. um He's on the verge of breaking into the big time, and he's not sure if he wants to continue doing kind of this weekend warrior independent wrestling thing or if he wants to go to the big time. We don't say WWE, but it's implied big time. And uh, his biggest fan overhears him talking about the possibility of not going to the big time and flips out and sort of Kathy baits him from misery and is like, no, I'm going to take care of you and we're going to show you why you need to go to the big time. So you're going to learn by hanging out with me. So it's just the ultimate wrestling fan losing his grasp on reality and taking matters into his own hands with a pro wrestler and everything that happens in between is really fucked up and terrible. Um. <laughs> and that's everything we want from yeah. a horror film, yeah. So I'm excited to see it. I haven't yet, and uh, I can't wait for you to unleash it on the world. I can't either. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, one of the things, you know, that we're talking about wrestling, and, and one of the draws for both of us is that theatricality. And to kind of transition a bit, earlier you mentioned that you do come from a theater background and you're a theater kid. And though you and I met, uh, at Cinema Wasteland a long time ago, um, we also had kind of a near miss mm-hmm. uh, a while back, thanks to your involvement in the world of Rocky Horror. Correct. I was in uh, Milwaukee 
doing a show with Peaches Christ, uh, and we did it with the local Rocky Horror cast, which you were a part of. And you were sick that night, or you weren't there? I was. I had a baton competition. Tell me about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For 20 plus years, I was a competitive baton twirler. Um, I went to what is considered like the Olympic level of baton. Um, They don't have an actual Olympics because the Olympics will no longer add sports that require judging similar to like synchronized diving or gymnastics. They want things that have definitive scoring, right? which is silly. But um, I did that for a very long period of time. Um, But the Rocky Horror Troupe uh, Central Daydreams in Milwaukee is kind of like my home away from home. I actually just did a production of the live version in Cleveland and it was very sad not being able to just have all of those people there with me. Um, But yeah, you came through town with uh, All But Evil and I didn't get to go and I was very upset about it. Um, But I was in sparkly costumes winking and making facial expressions at judges so i so think were we. <laughs> I was like, so i think we were kind of doing the same thing just it's parallel true. lives what if in if there were new olympic sports since you said they don't want to add sports that require judges what if any time a judge was needed it was just rupaul and michelle Visage, oh my no god matter what it was <laughs> <laughs> that's like my goal in life is to just be judged by michelle Visage. like i want her to just read me to filth like that's all i want like i can take that yeah, I'm sure she would comply. She's she's lovely, <laughs> but I, uh, you know, that's her job, and she's good at it. Uh, and you are a Drag Race fan. I am. Do you have any particular queens that you are crazy enthusiastic about? So I'm very, very enthusiastic about Trixie Mattel because Trixie Mattel is the first drag queen I ever saw in person that wasn't in a movie or on TV. Right. Because Trixie was part of the Central Daydreams Rocky Horror cast, the first time I ever saw Trixie, um, she was standing outside of the Oriental Theater holding up a sign that said, Fresh Bleached Pussy, and I was in love. <laughs> so, uh, very much ride or die for Trixie. Love Katya, love Alaska. Um, I am actually a huge fan of another um, Milwaukee Rocky Horror alum. She is a divine impersonator, Oh, Miss uh, Annalie Veitlisil, or... Uh, also known as Divine Trash. She is the best Divine Impersonator I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, She's fantastic. I love her. Um, I like kind of the quirky and campy queens. Those are the ones that speak to me. Um, I love Milk. I love Dela. I love... I don't think I've ever really met a queen that I didn't, at least, at the very... At the very least, like. I think it speaks to your your brand and interest, though, that you veer towards the culty and the campy. I do. You're not really a pageant queen kind of girl. Or it's, are you? Because you've done pageants, yeah? I did. I did pageants. I'm a former toddler in Tiara. I'm retired. <laughs> um, I like the pageant queens, but I've always been in the mindset that, especially with today, which, I mean... It's not a disservice to pageant queens, but because of the advent of the internet, anyone can now make themselves look beautiful. Thank you, Instagram. But right. having something other than a look to me is always some is always what I look. That's what I gravitate towards. I love the the pageant queens that try something different. Like I love whenever like Roxy Andrews or I mean Alyssa Edwards comes from the pageant world, right. but they have these over-the-top personalities, and they're willing to at least try something out of their comfort zone. But it's when the girls are like, well, I'm a pageant queen. I'm like, right. grow up. Like, figure something out. Come on. What's funny in the zeitgeist now, anytime anyone mentions Roxy Andrews, I just start the rap in my brain. <laughs> like, I just, you know, my name is Roxy Andrews, and I'm here to make it clear. I'm like, no. <laughs> I just think, like, the, the gif of just the wig uh, <laughs> under the wig just forever would that we all could have a wig under the wig i always would if i could yeah same uh so what have you been watching lately what's exciting you in the world of cinema (sighs) the world of cinema i've been watching a lot of older things i get sent all of the vintage pornography from vinegar syndrome so i've been just like running through all of that because i miss Shout out to Joe and Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah, we, shout out to James, because otherwise he'll be mad if Joe got mentioned and he didn't. Well, that's what we do. That's why we work together on these shows. <laughs> Tandem shout outs. So I've been kind of going through their entire library because I, I miss that. I miss when 
pornography was a movie that just happened to have sex in it. Yeah. I love that. Um, So I've been going through a lot of that. But as far as the horror world is concerned, I am loving this kind of explosion of very extreme female cinema, MFA, Mm -hmm. raw, like that is all day something that I'm into. I really liked raw. I really, really did too. I like, I like the idea of cannibalism being a coming of age staple. And I, I wrote a piece for birth movies, death where I sort of analyzed the trends of female portrayals in horror and how they reflect to kind of the feminist movement. And, you know, you have your exorcism films, which is very, very much rape culture of being entered and inhabited without your consent. Oh, that's an interesting Um, read. That makes plenty of sense. And then what followed shortly after is kind of like the Rosemary's Baby idea, which is very much abortion and like the woman's right to choose um, of all like the weird pregnant movies that started happening. And then we got sort of the 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 period movies as I would I would put them and now we're in like this cannibal thing which I think is responding to the feminist movement becoming a little bit more militant and more vocal and more aggressive than it had ever been before so it's only natural that the horror would reflect that in women literally tearing people to pieces now I know that you listen to the show so you know we talk about representation a Mm -hmm. lot and you just described like a whole swath of different ways you know body agency Mm -hmm. is represented and do you think that because these are things that mainstream patriarchal culture doesn't often like to acknowledge in the world we have to mask it in the horror genre to get that representation absolutely i think that's the same way that i firmly believe that the old zombie films of you know the golden age um, were Hollywood's last opportunity to be racist. Right. Um, I think that that's very much a reflection of, of the patriarchal wanting to like silence women and see them as, you know, inferior. The response obviously is going to be like, well, we're not just equal, but we're going to tear you apart. And that's, I don't know, that's like a weird, exciting moment for me. (laughs) I mean, I love it. You know, I'm always ringing the bell. We need more female-led films. We need more queer films. Absolutely. The fact is, it's like, and you know, what's great is the argument. You're like, why? Because you have yours. You're right. We want ours now. Exactly. It should not have to be subtext. Like, it should be able to be on Front Street. There should not have to be some overly dramatic explanation as to why a character is queer. They just are and let it be and call it a day. Um, Well, hopefully we'll get there. That's what I'm hoping for. Fingers crossed. Well, thanks to artists like you who are out there, you know, putting it out there, making it happen. I think the shift is coming and is happening. Uh, Speaking of what are you working on next? Um, I am doing a lot of writing right now. A lot of things that people have been like, I really like that idea. I think that's fun. Write that for me. Um, but things that I'm not allowed to talk about in case they don't work out. Absolutely. Get that. <laughs> um, so that's the big thing. Um, Powerbomb is about 85% done. Like it's picture locked. It just needs to be all the the bells and whistles need to be put on it. Um, I'm doing a production of Big Fish before I move to Los Angeles. So I'll be revisiting uh, my role is the witch. So I just get to belt my face off for weekends at a time, which is great. Um, and then working very, very hard with, uh, dread central. And I mean, dread central actually recently, um, announced at this year's AFM that they are now starting the dread central presents line, which is, um, they're acquiring horror films. And what excites me the most about the brand is that they're not trying to just do all of these slasher films that they're going to like crank out and send to Walmart. Like they're doing really interesting titles. And one of the ones they recently required is this beautiful, like haunting female art piece called imitation girl that I love. Um, I think that people who like sort of the, the raw style of films, I think would enjoy it. It's, it's very haunting and very fascinating. And, um, it's it's a really exciting brand to be a part of because it's just nice. It's nice being able to say, hey, I'm with people that are making conscious effort to expand kind of the canon of horror. 
Right. Now, you mentioned AFM, which is the American film market. And uh, the quickest way to explain that for listeners who don't know, uh, a film market, and they have them in Cannes and Berlin and Toronto. And, and uh, once a year, they have one here in, in Los Angeles, out in Santa Monica, the American film market. And that's where all the major studios and networks go and pick up films for international distribution. And you can go and try and sell your movie. Uh, I always call it Comic-Con for financiers because it is basically <laughs> just a week of, of schmoozing cocktails and yep. uh, and, and uh, booze. Um, you're out here not only with Powerbomb, but like you said, you're with Dread Central. Uh, and you've been out at AFM for the last few days. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything crazy that you've seen? Oh, it's... There are... I, I think I completely underestimated how vast and aggressive the international markets can be, mm-hmm. which is exciting to me. I like... I mean, there's so many things that I can't talk about because they're ones that they haven't publicized yet or gone live with, which is kind of the blessing and the curse is that I get to feel cool for about a month and then everything's announced and then I don't get to feel cool anymore. (laughs) But what's been interesting to me is seeing how many American companies are actively trying to push forward with newer titles. I mean, I've been focusing on a lot of the companies that are horror based and Many of them know who I am, which is exciting and terrifying. Right. Um, some of them recently found out who I am because of Twitter. Um, but they all say, this is our movie. It's directed by a woman. Right. This is our movie. We have you know, a, a director who's a person of color. And I'm like, I'm glad that you're finally realizing that this is something people care about. These people exist. Yeah, yeah. it's exciting. And I mean, it does feel kind of you know, dog and pony show at times and very like, well, this is our lady director. <laughs> I understand that. But at the very at the bare minimum, it's a start, and that's right. exciting. So I, I agree with you. I do think that the shift is coming, and it's nice to have kind of visual evidence in front of me of that. Well, you mentioned that people know you from Twitter, and as we wind <laughs> down the show today in our final moments, uh, you recently became something of a viral sensation for something other than your writing. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> it just happened days ago, uh, thanks to something you witnessed on your journey here to LA, and it's been blasted around to many articles and places on the net. Would you care to tell me a little bit about this story? Sure. So if you follow me on Twitter, my Twitter is mostly loud uh, opinions, wrestling gifs, and talks about horror movies and occasionally um, things that I eavesdrop um, around (laughs) Cleveland, because if anyone has ever been there, it is a hoot of people. True. (laughs) So uh, I was sitting at a bar at the Cleveland International Airport. It may or may not have been the Sammy Hagar bar. I cannot confirm or deny that. But I was listening to these women talk for about an hour and they were debating about um, somebody in their life coming out of the closet. And I just tried to you know, tune it out. I didn't want to be too into it. Um, it was all very positive, very, you know, I just wish they would be honest. I love them. And I was like, oh, that's that's nice. And, you know, these friends are helping out. And then one of them said, I've been married for him for so long. I wish he would just say something. So immediately my ear is glued to them. And then they continue talking. And I realize that it's very much a Grace and Frankie thing where these women are brought together because their husbands may or may not be having an affair with each other. And one of them, I named her the gum lady. She had decided she was going to see it for herself and fly to Chicago while her husband was on a quote unquote business trip. Sure. And she reconnect or she connected with this other woman who I named the shot lady. Cause she takes shots like a champ. Um, in this scenario, why wouldn't you? Right, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, but the shot lady, her husband is also on a quote unquote business trip in Chicago. And, um, she they they connected on Facebook having never met. They met in the airport at this bar for the first time and they are going to Thelma and Louisa to Chicago and confront their husbands and find out if they're sleeping together. Wow. And you uh, charted the the conversation from your I point of to. view. I uh, had to. <laughs> And as of today, it has been blasted around the internet. And what's great, I mean, you kept their identities anonymous. Right. You didn't know them anyway. Right. But the idea that this uh, this tale um, is is going around the net is wild to me. And I, I and I, I did not think that's what it was going to be. I do these threads constantly, whether it's women that are you know talking about their their night before. 
and they're having their like, I don't believe in walk of shame. I refer to them as a stride of pride, but their stride of pride breakfasts right. um, the next day and telling their girlfriend. You gotta go get breakfast the next morning. You have to. Yeah, you gotta yeah. absorb all that. Exactly. Like, you're just gonna be sick all day. So them talking at brunch about everything that happened. So I do it constantly. And then I landed in Los Angeles and my phone exploded. And I was like, okay, this is a bit much. It'll stop. And then it didn't stop, and then it became a Twitter moment, and now all the clickbaity sites are pulling oh, yeah. it up. I've seen it on Board Panda. It was on, on some e-cards. Um, BBC Three wrote a piece about it. Oh, that's um, how you know it's real. Yeah, yeah they're they're for serious. Uh, it's funny because I saw it. I think when you made the first tweet, mm-hmm. because everyone knows that I'm like an internet tyrant. I'm constantly right. like around, um, and then. A couple hours later, I returned to the computer and saw people who I know that I know you don't like sharing the story. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, cute. BJ's story's gotten like some tri- boom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just exploded. And it's kind of cool. Um, like, I'm, I'm glad that so many people like the story because ultimately the story is of two women in an uncomfortable situation brought together that have, you know, now kind of bonded and have this friendship. And I, I talked with some e-cards. They like wanted to talk to me about it. And I said, what I found most beautiful about this story is that for these women, their husbands being gay was never the problem. The problem is that they were lying. Yeah. And had this been two other women, it could have been a very different conversation. One that I probably would not have tweeted because it just would have been ugly and terrible. Right. But because they were bonding and they, the shot lady was f- dealing with it far better than the gum lady. She was even cracking jokes when they were sharing, you know, Halloween costumes of their grandchildren and their children. And she's like, our husband should have gone as Bert and Ernie. I'm like, God, you're the best. <laughs> like, this is so funny. Um, like they were just they were so entertaining and then obviously the connection of like real life Grace and Frankie was was definitely right. there but everyone seems to be responding to it because it's this tale of like female friendship that like was forged out of an awful situation sure. of two women finding out they're about to lose their husbands right. m- more than likely and um yeah, I didn't I didn't use their their names because one of the women has like a pretty uncommon name and it would have been super easy probably to track right. her down. Um, but their both their husbands had very like typical white guy names. I was like, that's fine. I can mention that. That could be anybody in the world. Right. But then I already had people that were like, these are the numbers of all of the flights that flew out of Cleveland to Chicago between this hour and this hour. I'm like, all right, you need to calm down. Like, this is terrifying. That is terrifying. So People ridiculous. need to have things to do. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I hope that if news of their their anonymous viral uh, fame reached the gum and shot lady, that they're doing all right. I hope so. And that that Chicago tri- Hopefully they got to Chicago. They did what they had to do for better or worse. And, you know, got uh, got some pizza. Or, yeah, or got that- some pizza, got a hot dog. Yeah. Took a cute little photo on Willis Tower of them hanging off the ledge, doing something fun. Ladies, if you're out there, Reckless Records frequently has great DVDs used. Um, Music Box Theater probably has some weird indie movie you couldn't see back in Cleveland. Go check it out. I, I like something. that we're giving like, direct <laughs> advice to these people. Here's your Chicago tourism. So listeners, if you're in Chicago this weekend as well, please. Um, so I, I just think it was a sensational story and you reported on it in such a cute way of something that could have been you know, a detrimental thing for these ladies. Right. So uh, it was, and it's just funny how the internet reacts. You never know what they're going to like. Like every yeah. time I hear somebody like, well, we want something that's going to go viral. I'm like, step you can't one, something you can't. Viral. Yeah. <laughs> it just has to happen. I've tweeted way more insane things that have no one's paid attention to. No, it's been my experience that you could tweet something really profound and like five people will like it, but then I could be like, "Cheese is great," and forty thousand people retweet it. Is great, well, Michael. Cheese is great, but you know what I mean. It's like it's sometimes just the thing that you don't expect that like goes nuts. Yeah, and that's it. You can't plan a viral anything. I mean, it's really just the world is chaos. So let's make it fun chaos. Yeah. So before we head out, uh, we've addressed a great number of things over the course of the conversation. Kind of vomited all over this place. But I love it. I mean, uh, we talked about important stuff, silly stuff, fun stuff. That's, you know, anything I would expect from a conversation between us. But is there anything before we head off into the night that uh, you want Dead for Filth listeners to know about you, about your work, Hmm. whatever? I would say don't 
don't be afraid to like what you like. There's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. And I think that's probably why I've gotten this far because I'm just completely unapologetic. Like love what you love and love it with everything that you have. I love that. No matter what it is, even if it's Amish Lifetime movies, that's mine. Oh, there aren't a lot of Amish Lifetime movies. Lifetime in particular, not that many. I think there's like three or four. Hallmark, that is where it's at. Well, as an occasional uh, employee (laughs) of both, I have to say, I agree. They're both where it's at. Uh, Where can people find you? Um, You can find me on Twitter uh, at BJ Colangelo. So it's just my name, nice and easy. Um, If you want to watch any of my short films, you can find them on sickeningpictures.com. That is my production company. Um, And yes, sickening like the drag term. And also because horror is gross, it's the perfect term. Um, But you can check that out there. Um, Don't add me on Facebook. My mom's there and she is a strange lady. You don't want her commenting on your things. Um, Instagram, my name as well. Uh, so yeah, Twitter and Instagram are the easiest way to find me or sickeningpictures.com. Great. BJ, thank you for coming to the show today. Thank you today. for having me. It was a true delight. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.